the central proponent of classical theism. As classical theism is discussed today, the central proponent, the main guy pushing classical theism, is Thomas Aquinas. And he thought that there is no Christian life without love, that love requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a person who is a Christian, and in that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have love, joy, peace, and so on, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, because your beloved is yours and you are his. Um, he thought that um, when you come to faith and have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are made a friend of God. God is there for you for consolation, for counsel, for shepherding through life. The main proponent of classical theism, without any doubt whatsoever, pushed the God of the Bible. He wrote bookal commentaries, and in his discussion of what the Christian life is like, it's um, a picture that any proponent of the God of the Bible will be happy to support. So if there were a contradiction between the God of the Bible and the God of classical theism, we would have in this very, very smart Christian thinker, Thomas Aquinas, we would have a colossal contradiction. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you've been listening to the Credo Podcast for any length of time, you may have noticed uh, a trend, a theme, in fact, that we like to talk about God, and we like to talk about the classical understanding of God, or what you might call uh, classical Christianity or classical theism. Uh, so many of uh, the divine attributes we've talked about on this podcast, well, you're probably familiar with some of them by now, from God's simplicity to God's aseity to God's uh, immutability or even God's impassibility, uh, and, and how uh, crucial these perfections are for a right understanding of who God is uh, and how this God then uh, relates to who we are. Of course, whenever we talk about classical Christianity, uh, and here we're thinking of uh, not just the scriptures, but we're thinking of uh, the early church fathers through the medieval period. You think of individuals like Anselm or Thomas Aquinas. Whenever we talk about this classical view of God, there are, of course, different objections that have been raised. So some of these objections have come uh, from the modern era even from a diversity of figures uh, who are critical of classical Christianity, or perhaps they see some truth to it, but nevertheless uh, don't want to accept all of it or want to modify or tweak uh, any number of divine perfections or even God's works and uh, providence and redemption. Uh, one popular objection that uh, keeps coming up, and I'm sure will keep coming up uh, long after us, is this. Well, if God is who you say he is, that if, if God is this simple, immutable, 
a being, even eternal and timeless, well, then this God must be inert and static, uh, perhaps even frozen or lifeless. Some have gone so far to even create a dichotomy between, say, the God of the scriptures, the God of the, the Bible, and the God of classical theism, uh, pinning these two against each other. And uh, these, uh, those who have objected to classical Christianity have even argued that, well, the God of the scriptures, this is a God who cares, this is a God who's relational, this is a God uh, a God who actually is involved and, and can relate, while the God of classical Christianity uh, is a God who's distant and uh, static and quite foreign to the God of the sacred texts. Well, this is a difficult objection uh, to respond to, and uh, I've, in, I've invited Eleanor Stump to come on the Credo podcast and help us answer this objection, one that she that is not foreign uh, to some of her own scholarship. Now, some of you may know Eleanor Stump uh, from St. Louis University, where she is a professor of philosophy there and has been there for some time. But some of you may also know her from uh, her many, many books, some edited books, some books she's written uh, as the sole author. Uh, I can't name them all here, but uh, some of them that I would recommend to you include her book on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, as well as uh, some of her uh, more recent books, Wandering in Darkness. Uh, she has a book on the atonement as well. But one book that I am especially interested in, published in 2016, is called The God of the Bible and the God of the Philosophers. Eleanor, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, and thank you for all that you're doing with these podcasts. Well, you know, I, it, is, it is a real treat to have you on here. Uh, you are uh, not just a trained uh, philosopher. You not only teach philosophy in the classroom, but you also have a special interest and background in medieval studies and medieval philosophy. And uh, I've seen that come out so much in your writings. Uh, in, in many ways, whether you're addressing uh, the doctrine of God or perhaps even doing it more indirectly through uh, a figure like Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you, you've been very insightful, and uh, I'm excited to have you on the Credo podcast to really tackle this, this objection. Now, let's, let's just face it head on. Uh, you, you've heard it before, I'm sure. Maybe it's from a student in the classroom. Maybe it's from a more prominent, um, a prominent thinker out there or scholar. But usually the objection goes something like this, that, well, if if you hold to the God of classical theism, then uh, that God cannot be engaged. Um, it cannot be personally present. Uh, in fact, the objection might even go so far to say, well, an immutable, eternal, simple God, this God's even um, static or inert. And, and this is clearly not the God of the Bible, they'll argue. So you've argued, though, very differently. And uh, I think of a book like The God of the Bible and The God of Philosophers, you've actually taken on that dichotomy. Maybe just as we start, you could get at your main argument uh, and, and how you would you get really at the core of that type of objection. Well, the first thing I want to say, and it's a crucial thing, that if those classical divine attributes Simplicity, eternity, immutability, and the rest. If they meant 
that God couldn't interact with human beings, couldn't answer prayer, couldn't be in intimate, loving relationship with human beings, couldn't engage in conversation with human beings, and so on. If that's what those classical divine attributes implied, then I would certainly jettison them. If you have to lose classical theism or the religion of the Bible, I have no hesitancy. I would uh, for sure lose classical theism and keep the religion of the Bible. But um, that is a choice that you don't have to make. The, the problems are generated by a failure to understand what those classical divine attributes are. And here, here's a way to help people get a kind of a quick fix on the issue. The central proponent of classical theism, as classical theism is discussed today, the central proponent, the main guy pushing classical theism is Thomas Aquinas. And he thought that there is no Christian life without love, that love requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a person who is a Christian, that in that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have love, joy, peace, and so on, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, because your beloved is yours and you are his. Um, He thought that um, when you come to faith and have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are made a friend of God. God is there for you for consolation, for counsel, for shepherding through life. The main proponent of classical theism, without any doubt whatsoever, pushed the God of the Bible. He wrote biblical commentaries, and in his discussion of what the Christian life is like, it's um, a picture that any proponent of the God of the Bible would be happy to support. So if there were a contradiction between the God of the Bible and the God of classical theism, we would have in this very, very smart Christian thinker, Thomas Aquinas, we would have a colossal contradiction because he upholds both of them explicitly and clearly. So that's the first thing to say. People who are worried about these classical divine attributes can relax. You can relax Mm -hmm. because um, the main proponent pushing them as we think about the issue these days is somebody who was fervently in favor of intimate personal relations between every believer and God. And he also wrote biblical commentaries in which he tried to show people how the Bible supports the kind of Christian life we should all have. So that's the first thing I want to say. After that, it gets harder. Uh, The difficulty is, the difficulty is uh, that God is metaphysically bigger than we are. So, When you try to understand something that is metaphysically bigger than you are, it tends to try to think of it as somehow smaller than you are. And that's where you get into trouble. So here's a way to understand the problem. Or here's a way to understand understand how we should look at God's eternity. We'll just pick that divine attribute. So suppose, do a thought experiment. Suppose there's a little two-dimensional world and suppose it just fits on your computer screen and suppose that it's inhabited by squares who are sentient 
who can think and talk and so on. And suppose that right in the middle of your computer screen, right in the middle of this world, there is one of these little sentient squares, and his name is Max. Now, because Max's world is two-dimensional and finite, it has an absolute middle. And suppose in Max's world, that absolute middle is called here. And as it happens, Max is right in that spot because he's in the absolute middle of this world. So we will try to talk to him. We'll say to him, Max, hi. And he'll say, wow, I hear your voice, but um, where are you? And then we will say to him, we're here. And Max will say, no, you're not. No, you're not. I am here. <laughs> and we'll say, well, actually, Max, um, you're just right in front of us. And Max will say, no, I'm not. I am in front of Larry, who's right behind me. And I know him very well. And we'll say, well, Max, actually, you're all right in front of us. And Max will say, you mean you're at the outermost edge of the universe? Wow. We'll say, no, no, Max, we're not we're not in the outermost edge of the universe. Um, actually, your whole world is here with us. And then Max will say, this makes no sense whatsoever. You're violating everything I know and care about. And if everything is here at once and nothing is here at once, this makes no sense, and you're wrecking the entire notion of here. How can you be friends with somebody for whom everything is here? And so on. Now you can see the problem. Max can't think his way up the ladder of being to the three-dimensional. For him, here is little. It's metaphysically little. But for us, here is big enough, because we're three-dimensional, that Max's whole world fits into our bigger three-dimensional here. So we could actually poke a finger into any part of Max's world at the same time, and each part of that world would be here for us, because this whole world is here for us. But of course, it's not all here for Max. Max is two-dimensional, and for Max, one place is here, and all the other places are not. Now you begin to get the idea of eternity. God's eternity is a now which is so big, so much bigger than our now, that all of time fits into it. And God can reach into any part on the timeline, and that moment on the timeline will fit into his now, doesn't fit into the temporal now, of course, any more than our here fits into Max's here. But still, God's now is so big that 1920 is here for God. 2030 is here for God in his eternal now. That's the way to think about it. And now you can see the worry was, look, if God is timeless, he's frozen. He can't interact with anything. But that's to get the whole doctrine of eternity absolutely upside down. I can interact with very few things because I'm temporal. So I have a little granddaughter, and her name is Lucy, and she's absolutely adorable. Ah, <laughs> uh, she was just the cutest baby there ever was, and I feel quite sure she will be an elegant old lady. But Lucy's eight now, and all I got of Lucy is her eight-year-old self. Her baby self is lost and gone. I can't access it. Her old lady self isn't here yet. I can't connect to it. I get Lucy just, you might say, a time slice at a time. 
I'm pretty limited. But God has Lucy's entire life present to him, not stretched out in a film clip on the wall, but present. So he can reach in and coo with Lucy when she was a baby and console her when she's an old lady and be present to her now when she's eight. And every part of Lucy's life is now to God. So God can be more intimate to Lucy and more present to Lucy than I can be. And that's the doctrine. So that's the thing to understand. Those divine attributes are very difficult for us to get our mind around. And why shouldn't they be? In trying to get our mind around them, we're trying to understand God who is much bigger than we are. And that takes some patience and some thought. Mm. So the doctrine of eternity doesn't separate God from us. It makes him much more present to us than the temporal being. Mm. You know, that last, uh, that last part that you just said is, it's just so important. I, I can't help but emphasize it, that uh, it, this, this entire discussion does require patience on our part. Uh, because we are talking about things incomprehensible to our finite existence. Uh, and so uh, God's e- eternality, his timelessness is certainly one of them. Now, uh, another com- component we could say of uh, a classical understanding of God would be uh, God's simplicity. And you've made the argument before uh, looking to, you know, looking for assistance from someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas that um, God doesn't have accidents like we do. Um, what what do you mean by that? And how does that uh, how does that build on what you just said? The doctrine of God's simplicity is the most complicated and difficult of all the theological doctrines. It's also very, very important. Mm. So you can think about it like this. Start with start with quantum mechanics. And um, ask yourself, you know, everybody's got a smattering of physics. Everybody's got a little bit of physics. Ask yourself, uh, what exactly is light according to quantum physics? And now... If you've got just even a little bit of amateur physics from high school physics or something, you'll know the answer goes sort of like this. Well, uh, light is a wave, and light is a particle. And no wave is a particle. No particle is a wave. But there's no contradiction here, because actually, we don't really know what light is. But we just know that sometimes it's quite right to talk about it as a wave, and sometimes it's quite right to talk about it as a particle. As long as you don't get mixed up and think that when you're talking about it as a wave, it isn't a particle. And when you're talking about it as a particle, it isn't a wave. You've got to make sure to remember whichever way you're talking about it, the other way of talking about it is right too. And why that should be, we don't know, but we know that's light. That's a basic idea. Sort of um, very amateur uh, high school physics, you might say. So, so the doctrine of simplicity tells us something like that about God. So, if you if you start by thinking about redness or justice or two feet longishness, all these things, these things are what we call universal. 
And the thing about universal is uh, none of them is a concrete subsistence particular. So, for example, if you want to say to me, redness, redness is so interesting to me. I'm thinking about redness, but I just don't know where to find it. Have you seen it recently? Well, then you'll know you're talking to somebody who's really very badly confused. Or if you say justice, justice is really the most marvelous thing. I'm so interested in justice, and I'm wondering how big is justice? Is it, you know, like, would it be, would it be huge or would it be small? If you tasted it, would it be sweet? I mean, you just completely mixed up. Justice has no accidents. That is to say, it has no quantity. It has no quality. It has no place. It has no time. If you say, I want to know when justice first came into the world, you're really confused. Justice isn't a thing that has a time. That's what it means to say there are no accidents. Redness is redness, and that's all it is. And justice is justice. That's all it is. Two-footedness is, is two-footedness. It is two-footedness plus sweet. It's just two-footedness. That's what it means to say these things have no accident. Now, um, the thing about those universals, redness, two-footedness, justice, and so on, the thing about those universals is they don't have any accidents because they aren't concrete particulars. You have a place and a time and a size and lots of qualities. You have all those things because you are a concrete particular. So here, here's a way, um, here's a way to understand the doctrine of simplicity. When we think about quantum mechanics, one of the things that we have to acknowledge is if you get to the ultimate foundation of all physical reality, things get pretty weird, pretty weird, pretty hard to understand. But if you get to the ultimate foundation of all reality, not just physical reality, but all of it, all reality, metaphysical reality too, at the ultimate foundation of everything is God, and God is pretty hard to understand too. But here's what we need to say about God, something very much like what we need to say about light. We need to say about God that we don't know exactly what he is anymore than we know exactly what light is. But we know that sometimes we need to say God is loving, and that is true. But sometimes we also need to say God is love. Now, notice that love is one of these universals. It has no accident. Love is not located somewhere south of Paris. Love doesn't have a certain size. It doesn't have a color. Love is just love and nothing else. And if God is love, then God looks like a universal. If God is loving, then God looks like a concrete particular. So which is it? Is God love? Or is God loving? And what we want to say is, well, both. But it doesn't follow that love is loving. That would really make no sense at all. <laughs> a concrete particular is loving, an abstract universal is not. So here's what we have to say. In some context, it's right to speak of God as love. 
in some contexts, it's right to speak of God as loving. It's never right to say love is loving. And it's never right to deny that God is loving because it's love. And it's never right to deny that God is love because he's loving. Hmm. So the doctrine of simplicity says you have to understand that we need a kind of quantum theology to understand God. Sometimes we have to speak of God as a universal, then he has no accident. And sometimes we have to speak of God as a concrete particular. Now, what this gets you is marvelous solutions to tricky problems. So here's one tricky problem that this gives us a help with. Suppose I ask you, what's the connection between God and morality? And now it looks like two options. You can say, well, um, whatever is good is good because God wills it. That's a theological relativism. It relativizes goodness to God's will. Or you could say, well, God wills things because they're good. And now we have a theological objectivism. There's an objective good out there, which God has to see and find and obey. The problem with theological objectivism is it may cash out of God's sovereignty. The problem with theological relativism is it may cash out of ethics, because anything at all could turn out to be good if God just willed it. So both these positions look like um, you for sure don't want to affirm either one of them. On the doctrine of simplicity, you don't have to, because here's what you can say. God's nature is goodness. The standard by which God judges things as good is not his will. It's also not some objective standard out there in the world. It is his own nature. So there's no relativism because his nature can't change. And he doesn't bend the knee to anything outside himself because it's his own nature that is goodness. And nonetheless, it is also true to say that God is good because he also a concrete particular as well as being goodness itself on the doctrine of simplicity. So that's one way in which the doctrine of simplicity is theologically very important and philosophically very helpful. And that's the basic idea behind the doctrine of simplicity. Although it is so difficult and so complicated, there really is quite a lot more to say about it. <laughs> I imagine there is. You know, maybe I can uh, just touch on one one thing you've mentioned and, and kind of run with it a little bit. Uh, I think when we describe God's simplicity, uh, one thing we are doing is uh, we are denying that there's some type of um, passivity or, or passive power, uh, and, and by that we mean that um, it, as if you have a, a, a type of God who is passive and can be acted upon or change or, or we can somehow change who he is by nature of our actions, uh, when we describe God in this way and, and deny this type of passivity to him, uh, we might 
rub up against discussions of, say, his knowledge um, or his will. And I know that in the past you have uh, made the argument, um, and here we, we get into a little bit more technical discussion, but uh, we'll, we'll tease it out just for a second. Uh, you've made the argument that, well, if God is this uh, simple, a God of simplicity uh, and immutable and e- eternal God, then uh, that would, uh, and, and if he is a God who doesn't have accidents or this type of passive potency, uh, well, then that would certainly um, preclude uh, what is called Molinism um, or some type of middle knowledge, which would um, in some way um, make God uh, perhaps dependent uh, on a, a possi- possible world. Maybe you could flesh this out. Uh, I know this is a technical discussion, but for our listeners who may not be fam- as familiar with it, what is Molinism or middle knowledge? And what, uh, just in a nutshell, what would be your response? Well, um, I think the bigger problem, I will answer your question about Molinism, but I think the bigger problem here is the question of whether on the doctrine of simplicity, God can't be responsive to human beings because nothing can act on him. And here I think we have a tangle of confusion. So um, I have a coffee cup in front of me. And I know it's a coffee cup in front of me because I see it's a coffee cup in front of me. And how does my seeing work? Well, light reflects from the coffee cup and strikes my eyes and fires retinal neurons that go through the optic nerve into the occipital cortex and lots of other places as well and are processed there. So when the light reflects from the coffee cup on my eyes, in that reflection, I am being acted upon by the light reflected from the coffee cup. I am a passive receiver of light reflected from the coffee cup. But you know, God doesn't need eyes to see. He can see without eyes. And you know what we're talking about here. You know what we're talking about because if I say to you, I wonder whether you've ever considered that your sister is cheating on you and taking money out of the family business and the scales fall from your eyes and you see it and you say, I see you are not seeing with your eyes. Mm-hmm. You're seeing with mind. And in that scene, no light is acting on you and you are not being acted upon passively. You are seeing with the active use of your intellect. And that kind of active seeing is the kind of active seeing God has. So he knows what you're doing because you do it, but he doesn't have to have light reflected from something onto his eyes in order to see what you're doing. Hmm. He sees it with his mind. So there's no question that God knows what he knows because you're doing it, but there's no passivity in him in consequence. So that's the first thing uh, to say there. And the second thing to say is to be responsive to somebody, you don't need to be acted on passively by them. So when my children were little, they would burst through the door of the house around 3 o'clock and race into the house saying, I need a snack. What's for snack? And the snack would be waiting for them on the kitchen table. I made the snack before they asked for it. Why? Because I was responsive to them without being acted upon passively by them. I didn't need them to yell, where's the snack? in order to understand 
that a snack would be good for them. And I prepared it for them because they wanted one. Although in responding to their desire, I was not being acted on passive as either. So that there is no passivity in God does not mean that God doesn't know what we do, does not mean that God is unresponsive to our prayers and desires, does not mean that. It means that God is responsive and God knows without passive potentiality. That's because he can do those things and you can too, to some extent, more limited than God, but to some extent you can do that too. As for a middle knowledge, uh, the general idea of um, the general idea of uh, the medieval Christians, medieval Jews, Muslims, and Christians, was that God knows two kinds of things. He knows um, all the truths of mathematics and logic and things of that nature. That's because all those things are in effect imitations of his nature. So when his nature is imitated in math, it's one thing. When it's imitated in logic, it's another thing. But God knows all those things with what's called natural knowledge, which is to say knowledge of his own nature. And then there are other things that God knows because he sees them. He sees what actually is happening in time. He knows the things that uh, happen in time. Those um, those things that are part of what we choose are known by him with a kind of uh, knowledge of time or foreknowledge of time, you might say. But there is, you might think, um, a third kind of knowledge. You might think there's a third kind of knowledge in between these two, in between the knowledge of his nature and its imitations on the one hand, and knowledge of things that happen in time, on the other hand, in between these two, you might think there is not what does happen or what could happen. There's what might have happened. And that knowledge in between is called middle knowledge. So you... Um, you jump in your car and put the car in reverse and stomp on the accelerator because you're late and you're angry. And you go right into the garage door with one with one accident. You require both home insurance and auto insurance to fix the mess. And you think to yourself, what would have happened if I had just slowed down and said my prayers about not being so angry before I got in the car? What would have happened? Now, um, if there's something to know there, the knowledge in question is middle knowledge. There are a lot of people, me included, who think there's nothing to know there. What you would have done if circumstances had been different, what you would have done is not something that can be known. And why? Well, because you actually have freedom of choice. You have free will. So if the circumstances had been different, there's no telling what you would have done because those are non-actual circumstances and your will is free. There's nothing to know there. So it's a fight in philosophy whether there's something to know there or not, whether there is any middle knowledge. 
And um, there are some people who think there is. And then there are a fair number of people who think there isn't. And I'm one of those who think there isn't. Now, I can't help but notice that earlier in our discussion, you brought up the Holy Spirit. And this may be surprising to some of our listeners because perhaps they never associated, uh, say, classical theism, let alone Thomas Aquinas, uh, with the Holy Spirit, and specifically the Holy Spirit's uh, omnipresence and and presence uh, in this world or in our own lives even. You make uh, the point that, well, the Holy Spirit uh, is is God, and, and he is the mutable, eternal, and simple Holy Spirit, and uh, that he's also at the same time present. And, of course, we could even look at uh, the way that Scripture uh, at times associates um, the Holy Spirit with divine speech or even divine love itself. Now, to play devil's advocate a little bit here, uh, some will say, well, if the Holy Spirit is immutable and eternal and simple, these perfections that we've been talking about, uh, then surely he can't uh, be the God who is also present and let alone communicating. Uh, how would you how would you respond to that type of uh, that type of objection? Well, on the doctrine of the Trinity, which Christians accept, the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. The Father is God. There is only one God. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity: one God and three divine persons. So if the Holy Spirit is God, then every divine attribute is also an attribute of the Holy Spirit. So all the things I just said about the classical uh, divine attributes apply also to the Holy Spirit, just as God, on the doctrine of simplicity, can be responsive, knowing, intimately connected, present to every person at every moment of life, so the Holy Spirit can also. Now, when you um, when you talk about the Holy Spirit uh, in this Trinitarian way, of course, this uh, the, the way you described it is so helpful because uh, here we are bringing into the discussion uh, divine simplicity again. And when we look at uh, the way that Scripture describes the Holy Spirit, we see the Spirit's um, very much the Spirit's presence. Say, for example, in uh, the Christian community, the Church. Um, but we also could say that um, even, say, prior to Pentecost, uh, we see uh, traces of God's presence in all kinds of different ways. Now, I happen to know uh, from, from some of your past research and writing that uh, you, you particularly enjoy looking at the book of Jonah. And uh, maybe uh, you could just bring us to a close here by uh, kind of uh, wrapping up this discussion, and and how how do we, on the one hand, take all that we've learned in our time together, and and how do we see that in very vivid terms, um, in terms of God's own uh, communication, God's own presence, um, both to judge and to save uh, through a book like Jonah. Well. In the book of Jonah, we have a lot of interactions between God and Jonah. God comes to talk to Jonah. They give him a job. Go to Nineveh and tell the people to repent. Jonah knows right away it's God. He doesn't say, I hear something, but what could it be? He knows right away 
God, he recognizes God's voice and uh, he doesn't want to do what God tells him. So he tries to run away. And then God very patiently shepherds Jonah, very patiently shepherds him until finally Jonah's on the ship going as far away as Jonah knows how to go. And God makes this storm at sea that imperils the ship. And then Jonah knows it's God chasing him. And he doesn't want everybody on that boat to die just because he's trying to run away from God. So he says to the sailors, throw me into the sea. And the sailors don't want to, but finally they see the point and they throw him overboard. And as he's going down, down, down under the waters, getting ready to die by drowning, he says in his heart, let me just look one more time for Jerusalem. As he's dying, what he loves is the presence of the Lord to him. And the presence of the Lord to him reminds him, is present to him, is evoked by the thought of Jerusalem. So he looks toward Jerusalem. He looks toward God in his heart. And God thinks, all right, okay, if you're going to be at least that much melting in your stony heart, and God sends some kind of giant sea beast to swallow him up and keep him safe for a little while. And while he's in that beast, Jonah thinks it over. He's a very, very tough guy, this Jonah. He thinks it over and finally says to God, all right, I'll go to Nineveh. And God talks to the beast. And the beast knows God's voice too. So the beast finds a convenient point and spits Jonah up on the shore. And Jonah then marches to Nineveh to give him the message. Repent. Because in 40 days, your city is going to be destroyed. And then he goes to sit outside the city and wait. And as he's sitting outside the city waiting, he's grumpy. He's thinking to himself, God, I know God. He's so mm-hmm. merciful. He's never going to destroy that city. And I'm going to look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. And soon enough, in 40 days, the city doesn't get destroyed. Well, while Jonah has been waiting to see if God's going to destroy the city, a plant grows next to Jonah, and it's a nice plant, and he likes it. And then some kind of parasite gets into that plant and withers it, and it dies, and then Jonah is mad about the plant. So God comes to talk to Jonah, and God says to Jonah, Hey, Jonah, are you mad about that plant? And Jonah says, Yes, I am. I most certainly am. He's talking to God. He recognizes the voice right away, and he tells God, Yes, I'm mad about the plant. And Jonah has a pretty good idea that it's God's fault that plant withered. And God says to Jonah, trying patiently and lovingly to teach Jonah, he says, look, you're, you, you're caring for the plant. It's just a plant. I'm caring for a whole city in which there are 150,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand, which would have to be the children because they're the only ones who can't do that. So he's telling Jonah, look, of course I'm not going to destroy it if they repent. I never meant to say, whether you repent or not, I'm going to destroy it. He meant to say, I will destroy it if you don't repent. So he's saving the city of Jonah. He's getting the city of Nineveh, getting the city to repent. And in the process, he is shepherding Jonah, one person who's dear to him, beloved by him, and whom he's teaching to love the way God loves. And that's the story of Jonah. And it is perfectly compatible, perfectly compatible with the central divine attributes in every way it fits them. The God of that story is both love and loving, for sure he is, and that simplicity. 
and he absorbs every now of Jonah's into his much greater now. So all of Jonah's life is always present to him. He can interact with Jonah fully anytime. And he does what he does because of what Jonah does. He makes the storm at sea because Jonah runs away, and he wouldn't have done it otherwise. So that's the God of Passable Theism and the story of Jonah. We've been talking to Eleanor Stump. Uh, she is the Robert Henley Professor of Philosophy at St. Louis University. She has uh, contributed in so many ways to the God of Classical Theism. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you have not listened uh, to, uh, to Eleanor Stump or perhaps even read her, uh, I would encourage you to pick up her book. Uh, maybe it's her book on uh, Aquinas. Uh, perhaps it's her, her book, The God of the Bible and the God of the Philosophers, a, a small book, but boy, is it packed with uh, so much of the discussion we've had today. Uh, but regardless, I hope that you will uh, follow Eleanor Stump as she um, so carefully, uh, oftentimes looking uh, to the, to script, the scriptures uh, as well as to classical theists like Thomas Aquinas himself, as she carefully uh, in, uh, adds these, uh, as you've seen, the type of nuance, careful nuance to make sure that she is understanding God in the right way. Eleanor, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast and answering uh, so many of these difficult objections. Thank you so much for including me in your good work on this podcast. I'm very glad to have had a chance to work with you on this, and I wish you all the best in the work that you continue to do in this good ministry. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.